I'd like to invite you at this time to turn with me in, in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, as we make our way through uh, this book, uh, we've been in chapter 12 the past couple weeks, and I'd like to finish off the chapter today, beginning, uh, beginning our reading in verse 27 down to the end. So let us once again give ear to the reading of God's word, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would pierce our hearts with your truth. Grant to his faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Oh, beloved of the Lord, throughout the history of the church, there has been a tendency to place a heavy emphasis on either the corporate nature of the church or the individual nature of the Christian life. An example of the former perhaps could be the Middle Ages, a time in which the church basically told ordinary Christians, leave the religious stuff to us. And they told people that it wasn't really necessary for them to know their Bibles or to know Christian doctrine, as long as they said that they believed whatever the church taught, whatever that may have been, they said, you're fine. Of course, the opposite extreme might be uh, what we have seen in the last hundred years in our country where there is such an emphasis upon the individual that it's basically all about you, Jesus, and your Bible. And it's not uncommon for people who profess to be Christians who say, well, I don't need to go to church. I don't need that corporate body. I am fine all by myself because I have my Bible and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Well, those, of course, are extremes that we would wish to avoid. And I think At the end of the day, the question between the corporate nature of the church or the individual nature of the Christian life is a false dilemma. We need to affirm both. And I see, I think we see that clearly taught in the book of 1 Corinthians. In our verse today, or the first verse that I read for you today, verse 27, I think we see both of these clearly affirmed. As Paul says, now you are the body of Christ. The you there in the Greek is plural. If we are in the South, I would say, now y'all are the body of Christ. There's the corporate nature. We are one body. And yet Paul goes on to say, individually, we are members of it. Back in chapter 6, the Apostle Paul said, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You were not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. 
Back there, the Apostle Paul was stressing the need for personal holiness since each and every one of us have been redeemed and purchased by the blood of Christ and given the Holy Spirit so that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. We therefore need to glorify God, each and every one of us, with our own lives. And yet here is the Apostle Paul has been developing this theme of the body of Christ and how we are individually members of the body, he now stresses the need for us as individuals to recognize the fact that we are all connected together. We're not isolated in the Christian life, but we are connected, knit together in love through the power of the Holy Spirit. As I said, the Apostle Paul has been developing this extended metaphor of the fact that just as our bodies are composed of many members, boys and girls, you're made up of hands and feet and eyes and ears and fingers and toes and all of these various parts of your body, and yet put together, you you only have one body, so it is with the church, which is the body of Christ. And Paul was explaining the fact that, that all of us are different. Just like a hand is different from your head or a foot from your knees, we all serve different functions, and yet put together, we are a fully functioning body. Of course, this is more than just a metaphor. It's more than just a nice sermon illustration. It's actually true that we are the body of Christ because we are united to him by his spirit. And so because of that fact, because we are every member is part of the body of Christ, Given particular spiritual gifts, which we ought to use for the common good, no part of the body is dispensable. Just like you need every single part of your body, so each and every one of you are a vital living member of the body of Christ. And so no one member should say that they don't need the other. No one should be so uh, uh, self-sufficient or autonomous to say that I have no need of you. As Paul said, the eye should not say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor the head to the foot, I have no need of you. No individual should think that they are self-sufficient or better than anyone else. And on the other hand, no member should think that they really just don't belong because they don't serve a prominent role. But it is God who has sovereignly orchestrated, just like a work of art, just like a master painter can blend together the various uh, pigments, pigments to make a beautiful color of paint to make a a masterpiece. So God has taken each and every one of you and placed you in the body of Christ so that you can serve your appropriate function as you serve your neighbor. And we see that uh, clearly taught throughout chapter 12. And yet when we come to our passage today in verse 28, it's interesting that then Paul begins a list. He says, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. At this point, we might say, well, wait a minute, Paul. Didn't you just warn us about having a superiority complex? Didn't you just warn the eye not to say to the hand, I have no need of you? Didn't you just say that all of us equally and individually are gifted with the Holy Spirit? How is it now that you can start composing this list, this sort of rank, where you have the apostles first, and then the prophets, and then teachers. Well, it's important to note here that although all spiritual gifts are equally vital for a fully functioning church, 
So in that sense, there is no hierarchy in the church. There's no one person who can lord it over another and say, well, I'm more important than you, or I have no need of you. It's important to note that in God's sovereign gracing upon, uh, gift, gifts of grace upon the church, that there is a certain order of operations to ensure that things work properly and to ensure that the church is built up. So let me ask you this, expanding upon Paul's metaphor, what's more important, your heart or your brain? I think we would all say that they're both vitally important, right? But if your heart does not pump blood to your brain, it doesn't work. And so in that sense, the, the heart needs to work first in order to get blood to your brain, in order for your brain to tell your heart to keep pumping it blood. There's an order of operations here. Okay, And the same thing is true in the church. Uh, uh, going from a body metaphor, a biological metaphor, to a construction metaphor, there's a certain way in which things are put together. My sons love to build Legos. right? And so when you're building, say, a, build, a Lego building, you don't start with the roof. No, you start with the foundation. You build from the ground up. And so it is with the church. And so that's what the Apostle Paul is getting at here when he's talking about, when he begins this list of apostles, then prophets, then teachers, and so on and so forth. Now, also, you need to keep in mind that Paul isn't speaking about individuals, but he's speaking about gifts, gifts which the Spirit has sovereignly and graciously dispersed according to his good pleasure upon certain uh, upon all of us as individuals. So none of us should boast in receiving a gift. Paul's already made that point back in chapter 4 when he says, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So when he lists apostles or prophets or teachers or speaking in tongues, these are gifts of the Holy Spirit. None of us should boast in having any of these because God has graciously bestowed uh, bestowed this upon us. The other thing to note before we get into this list is that God has, has, uh, uh, has uh, appointed these gifts upon certain individuals in the church. And that's important to note here that when Paul speaks about the church, he's speaking about the church universal throughout the world and throughout time. And so he's not referring to individual local congregations, although that may apply to local congregations. He's referring to the church as a whole. Okay? And so what are these things? Well, first we see apostles. An apostle is literally one who has been sent out, somebody who has been commissioned with a particular message or task. And so the apostles in the church are those who were commissioned by Christ, who served as witnesses to his resurrection. They were commissioned and sent out by him to proclaim the gospel to all nations. This would include uh, the, what, the, the group of guys that we call the Twelve. Uh, of course, Judas falling out and then uh, being replaced later on, right? So this would include the Twelve, but also would include the Apostle Paul. Who, is, who was the least, as he said, the least and the last of the apostles. He'll go on talking about this in chapter 15 when he says, last of all, in referring to the appearances of the risen Lord to certain uh, individuals, including the 12, he said, last of all, 
As to one untimely born, he appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. And so here the Apostle Paul speaks about the gift that he received, the gift of apostleship, where the risen Lord appeared to him and commissioned him to proclaim his name to the Gentiles, to kings, and to the children of Israel. And he says he calls himself the least of the apostles, but I think also the last of the apostles, because in the list he says, last of all, Christ appeared to me. And so we see here that the apostles serve a foundational role in the church. Boys and girls, if you've ever constructed a Lego building, you start with the foundation. You start with the ground and you build up from there. You don't put a foundation on the roof. And so we see the fact that the apostles serve a temporary function in the life of the church. That is, they serve as the foundation. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 2. In speaking of the church as the temple of God, he says that it is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. You got to love that mixed metaphor where Paul talks about a building growing, uh, you know, mixing the metaphor of a body that grows, but also a building that is constructed up, and yet it is built on the foundation of the apostles. They serve that formative role in the life, uh, in, in the construction in, uh, of the temple of God. Now, it's important to keep in mind that although the apostles were inspired by the Holy Spirit, and bore equal authority with the Lord Jesus Christ, as we saw Paul in chapter 7 say, not the Lord, but I give you this command. He has equal authority with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's important to keep in mind that that did not make them big shots. They didn't walk around with people kissing their feet. They didn't demand that people bow down to them or, or gave them uh, uh, you know, this deference. If anything, as an apostle, being commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ, that made them servants of all. As Jesus told those men who would serve as as apostles, if you want to be first in the kingdom of God, you need to be a slave of all. Paul goes on speaking, or, or actually Paul's already described what life as an apostle was like back in chapter four when he said this, For I think that God has has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Still want to be an apostle? I think not. 
Here we see that although, the, that, that although Paul lists the apostles as first because they serve as the foundational role, we see that the first has become last and servants of all. And so that's the first gift that the apostle Paul lists here, not because it ranks higher, but because it serves as that foundational role. Well, second, we come to prophets. Now, a prophet is those who spoke the inspired word of God. If praying is speaking to God, prophesying is speaking for God. Now, prophecy did involve, in the New Testament, a certain type of foretelling, predicting future events. You may think of Agabus, the prophet, in the book of Acts, who predicted the famine that was going to come upon the world, or predicted the fact that the Apostle Paul would be arrested when he went to Jerusalem. But more than just foretelling, prophecy was mainly forthtelling. That is, making known God's will and applying it to the lives of God's people. In chapter 14, verse 3, the Apostle Paul says, The one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. That's what the gift of prophecy does. It's speaking on God's behalf to his people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Now, again, this was a very important gift during the formative years of the New Testament, or during the formative years of the church, during the time in which the New Testament was being written. Just imagine for the first few decades of the church after the resurrection of Christ, before any of the New Testament letters or documents that we have in our Bible today, before any of those things were written, just imagine what church was like. Imagine coming to church today, and the only Bible that we have was our, is our Old Testament. There you see the need for a prophet. There you see the need for somebody who can give revelation, fresh revelation from God, to explain the newness of the work of Christ. And considering the fact that there were only a baker's dozen apostles, clearly they, clearly they couldn't be in every single church, everywhere at the same time. And so you see here the need for these prophets to proclaim God's word, to speak for the upbuilding and encouragement and consolation in light of the newness of the work of Christ after his resurrection. But even when the prophets spoke, there was still a need for them to be tested. As the apostle Paul will go on to say in chapter 14, let two or three prophets speak and then let what they say be weighed and judge to make sure it's in, in accordance with God's word. Perhaps the longest and last example of New Testament prophecy that we see in our Bibles is the last book of our Bible, the revelation of Jesus Christ given to John, which John specifically calls a prophecy. And he gives a blessing to those who read aloud the words of this prophecy. Well, we see now, uh, having seen the apostles and the prophets and how they also serve a foundational role in the formation of the church during a time in which the New Testament was being composed, we now come to the third on the list, that is teachers. And it's important to note at this point that all three of these, the apostles, the prophets, and the teachers, all three of these can fall under the broad category of the ministry of the word. The primary functions of apostles, prophets, and teachers is to proclaim God's word to his people. 
This is very similar to the list that we see in Ephesians chapter 4, where the Apostle Paul lists the apostles, the prophets, and he adds the evangelists and pastors. But all of those primarily fall under the category of the ministry of the word. But what sets teaching apart from prophecy and the work of the apostles is that, is that the teaching gift is not a relevant, uh, sorry, a revelatory gift. That is, while the apostles and prophets were proclaiming fresh revelation, teachers were taking the revelation already given and proclaiming and applying it to the lives of God's people. In this sense, the teaching office or gift is a perpetual office that continues throughout the history of the church. That is, until the Lord returns, when we won't need any more teachers. And if the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ and the ministry of the Apostle Paul is any indication, we see that the teaching gift served as the primary function of the minister of the word. If you go and read the Gospels or you read the Apostle Paul's letters or any of the New Testament epistles, more often than not, they're not proclaiming fresh revelation, but they're applying their teaching based upon the revelation already given in the Old Testament. Now, of course, it is all revelation, but what we see here is that teaching is the primary thing. How many times does the Apostle Paul say, I don't want you to be uninformed. I want to remind you of what you were already told. Or Peter, you know, at the end of his life, I'm not, I'm not telling you anything new. I'm just going to stir up by way of reminder what you've been told a million times. That's the teaching function. Uh, repetition, bringing back things that God has already revealed. In all of these functions, uh, the first three on the list, the apostles, prophets, and teachers, which fall under the category of the ministry of the word, all of this is, for, is in order to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 4. Now, it's interesting to note that the Apostle Paul starts this list by saying one, two, three, or first, second, third, but then he continues the list without numbers. And I think that's significant in that the first three are vitally important. The first three having to do with the word need to come first. And it is from the preaching of the word that all the other gifts flow out of. So let's continue the list as Paul goes on to list miracles. He lists miracles as well as gifts of healing. Now these two gifts, Paul has already referenced earlier in the chapter. As we saw back then, those, these gifts of miracles and healing are what we call sign gifts that serve to validate the message proclaimed by the apostles and prophets and those that heard them. And so again, we see these sign gifts serve as a foundational role. As fresh revelation was given, the Holy Spirit sent these gifts of miracles and healing in order to testify, to confirm that the message was in fact from God. We see this pattern taught in Ephesians, or sorry, in Hebrews chapter 2. As the author there says, it was declared at first by the Lord, And it was attested to us by those who heard, speaking of the apostles, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So you see, again, that order of operations. The Lord Jesus Christ proclaimed his word. The apostles heard it. 
and, and, and taught it themselves. And then the Holy Spirit sent the sign gifts, signs, wonders, various miracles, in order to testify in a legal sense, to confirm that the message was, in fact, from God. And since that fresh revelation has already been delivered and confirmed by the Holy Spirit, we shouldn't expect these miracle gifts, these sign gifts, to continue throughout the history of the church. It's interesting that following right on the heels of the gifts of healing, we find a very seemingly mundane gifts. We see the next one is helping. How mundane is that? Being helpful. But in fact, we need to understand that this is also a gift of the Holy Spirit given to the church for the common good. There are those in the church who are gifted by the Holy Spirit who are particularly helpful. They're good at recognizing needs and making sure that those needs are met. We see this happen In the early days of the church in Acts chapter 6, when there was a daily distribution to the widows, and yet some of the Greek-speaking widows felt like they weren't getting their proper share. And so word was reached to the apostles, and the apostles thought, well, this is very important. We want to make sure that the tangible needs of the widows are being met, and yet we uh, we, we need to dedicate ourselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. So what do they do? Well, they look for men who are wise, who are gifted by the Holy Spirit to ensure that the needs of the widows are being met. And there they appoint the men who serve as the first deacons. And so those who particularly possess this gift of helping are rightly recognized and set apart as deacons in, or servants, literally servants, in the church. Now, of course, deacons aren't the only ones who have the gifts of helping, but it is especially deacons who possess that gift in order to facilitate, oversee and facilitate works of mercy in the church. The next gift we come across is another seemingly mundane gift. It is that of administrating, or literally in the King James, governments. And yet again, we need to understand that this is a vital a vital gift in the function of a well-ordered church. The word translated here, administrating, uh, literally has to do with steering a ship, uh, being the captain of a ship and, and being at the helm and directing it through, uh, through the waters. In the same way that a ship needs to be steered properly, so also the church needs those at its helm that rule well. As Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, or as we read in Romans chapter 8, that those who lead ought to lead with zeal as they set a godly example for the flock of God. Well, if those who possess the gift of healing or helping are rightly recognized and set apart and ordained as deacons, those who possess the gift of administration or, or ruling are rightly recognized and ordained and set apart as ruling elders in the church. So these aren't just offices, they are gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to the church in order to make sure that the body of Christ is functioning well. Well, finally, we get to the end of the list where the Apostle Paul once again mentions various kinds of tongues. You'll notice that the Apostle Paul, when he has this list and the list that he had Uh, back in verse 10, 
you'll notice that tongues comes last. He mentions the gift of tongues, or properly languages, because that's what it was. It was the gift. To, it was the gift for somebody to speak a, a known language unknown to them and proclaim the things of God in an unknown language or tongue. He lists it last once again. Now, Paul will have much more to say about the gift of tongues in chapter 14, where he will show how, in fact, the gift of tongues is inferior to the gift of prophecy in the context of the corporate worship of the church. It's important to note that he's not knocking a spiritual gift. He's not saying, oh, yeah, the gift of tongues, and it's not really that important. No, but he's wanting to put it in its proper place. In other words, not all gifts are created equal. As we will see in chapter 14, there's some gifts that are better for the building up of the body of Christ. And it seems that the Corinthians had an unhealthy preoccupation with the gift of tongues. They were using it perhaps as a means to promote themselves in the church. And Paul felt like he needed to correct this abuse. So once again, he puts tongues last. And in chapter 14, he will show how prophecy is far better. And then he has this list of rhetorical questions that sort of summarize everything he's been saying in chapter 12 up into this point when he says, are all apostles? Well, clearly not. As I said before, there's only a baker's dozen apostles and they serve a formative role in the church. Are all prophets? Well, no, certainly not. Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? These are all rhetorical questions where the obvious answer is no. Not everyone possesses the same gift. The Holy Spirit has been pleased to give a diversity of gifts, a great variety of gifts, where in fact each and every one of us are a unique combination of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so he's underlined this fact that the gifts are variously dispersed No one serves the same function. God has not cloned us all, but he loves diversity. And so so each each and every one of us, as individual members of the body of Christ, need to use our unique gifts for the building up of the body. See, the Corinthians all wanted the limelight. They wanted to be the eyes. They wanted to be the mouth. They wanted to be the ones who get all the glory. And they were using the gifts of tongues to get that glory, to get their 15 minutes of fame as they stood up in the church and at least thought that they were speaking in tongues. Just imagine that. suppose there's some churches that we could go to where you could witness something like that. But the Apostle Paul says in chapter 14, he says, If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues... And outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? Well, that's what the, that's what the Corinthians were doing, because they all thought tongues was the best gift. Well, in order to correct this abuse, the Apostle Paul says something that may throw us off at first, in verse 31. He says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. We might say, well, wait a minute, Paul, isn't that what they were doing? Isn't that what the Corinthians were hoping to do in all wanting to speak in tongues and coming together? And you have this sort of competition to see who could outspeak the other? Well, you got to appreciate the irony in Paul's statement here. 
when he says earnestly desire the higher gifts, he has something else in mind when he speaks of a higher gift or, or perhaps even the greatest gift. You see, he needs to set them straight. But before he can address the gift of tongues, in particular in chapter 14, he needs to show them something else in chapter 13. He needs to set them straight in that the highest gift is not one that brings glory to yourself, but the highest gift, the greatest gift, the more excellent way is the way of love. For even if you speak in the tongues of men and of angels, if you have not love, you are like, you are like a clanging cymbal. And so the Apostle Paul has to point them, direct them once again that everything done in the church needs to be motivated by love for the building up of the body of Christ. Well, in conclusion, we need to be reminded of the fact that it is the Lord Jesus Christ who solemnly swore that he will build his church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He is the master builder. He is the one who is taking us as living stones and constructing us. It's great that he has not left us to our own strength and ingenuity to construct the church. Could you imagine what the church would be like if, if, if it was left to us to build it? I'm sure you could. But we need to be reminded of the fact that it is the Lord Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit that he has poured into our hearts, who has made us living stones, who is taking each and every one of us and constructing us and fitting us together, knitting us together in love so that we might use our gifts. So may God, by his grace, enable us to not only recognize our gifts, but to put them to use and improve upon them for the edification of the church. And may we do all of this out of love for one another. Amen? Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we do thank you for the fact that you so loved your people, that you were willing to lay down your life for your bride. Thank you also that you have uh, purified us and washed us through the word, and you continue to give us your Holy Spirit and bestow shower gifts upon us so that we might use those gifts. Lord, we pray that you would grant to us much, much grace and hearts, uh, a servant's heart so that we might seek to please you as we serve our neighbor. And we ask all this in your name. Amen.